0: As you're turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't know, I'd, I'd probably like a raise of hands just to see how many literate people we have here. Oh, my filter's not working. My wife's looking at me. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. How many of you ever have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? By John Bunyan. All right, so I, I'm going to raise my hand here. I've, I've, I've read that. It's a long time ago, but I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it was written in the, I believe, in the 17th century, which means the 1600s, and it's written in a foreign language, English. And I say that with all honesty, you read this guy and you're going, Holy smokes, I have to read it three or four times to figure out what he's saying, but it has very, very good, very good thing. Well, you know, he wrote another allegory besides Pilgrim's Progress. It was called The Holy War. But most of us, and I wasn't aware of this because I've never read the book, but we're not aware of its full title. Here is Bunyan's full title. And I could almost call it a book. He called it the holy war made by King Shaddai upon Diabolus for the regaining of the metropolis of the world or the losing and taking again of the town of Mansoul. Now that's typical for the 17th century because they wanted you to have the title so you could look at it and you're going, okay, that's what this book is about. We didn't have the Amazon reviews. This is what the book's about. And with the title, Bunyan leaves no doubt. He believed that God and Satan are locked in a titanic war which, souls, which the souls of humanity are at stake. It's that big. It's that large. And that we are principal players in a real war. Last week I know that I I was I was up. I tried to, I felt that I wanted to let us know how important it is to know that we are in a battle, a spiritual battle that goes, flies all around us. And Bunyan's writing there's there's nothing of the anti supernatural, flat sided theology of today's modern theologians but rather the full-blooded realities of biblical theology that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And by wrestling, I mean hand-to-hand-to-hand combat, full-out UFC on steroids. Bunyan knew from biblical revelation and repeated personal persecution that life is one long battlefield in which there can be no retreat, no surrender, no quarter given if we are to be faithful in Jesus Christ. It's significant that Bunyan's, most of Bunyan's writing was done from a prison cell because of his stand that he took for Christ. The Christian soldier must never expect to find rest in the world. You can't expect to go, "Oh, I'm going on vacation. It doesn't happen. God will never will never hear, excuse me, we will never hear orders. Be at ease. Children, relax. Put your guard down, put your armor aside. No. He doesn't say that because we are always in a spiritual battle. And when Paul wrote this, he was trying to use every word picture he possibly could to get his point across. And as he was writing this, of course he was chained. We'll see this next week at our, in our final passage in Ephesians. He was chained to a prison guard. So he naturally looked at what this guy was wearing. And if it was written today, I would say, well, okay, I, w- I want to view what this guy is writing or what he, what he wants to say because we're a very visual people. We like to watch our video screens. He didn't write this in black and white. He wrote it in 4K. Very vivid. After last week, were verses... 10 and 13 of chapter 6 were reviewed, I I hope that you understand that it is an imperative that we put the God-provided armor on. We must do that. And we must, after we put the the armor on, stand. Well, first, what does this mean? What what does this entail? Well, this morning we're going to study that. We're going to study the details of God's mighty armor. Out of respect to the Word of God, I would ask that you stand, please. As I read this morning's passage, if you you need a Bible, you should be able to find one. It should should be in front of you, a blue one, if you need it. It's on page 979. I'm going to begin at verse 10 this morning to give, give us the entire context of the passage. with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. May God bless the reading of His Word, and may we as your people understand it and put it into practice. You may be seated. Paul paints a picture this morning of a Christian in complete battle regalia from head to toe. And he describes the six parts of the soldier's uniform so we can do battle against Satan and his minions. Now, they're listed in exact order that a soldier would and should put them on. And all of them, except the last, are defensive. They're defensive in nature, and we have to understand that we need God's protection, and he provides it. And I also believe that the important truth is this. God not only makes it possible for believers to stand, he expects them to do so. He expects you to do so by depending on His divine resources. Well, having understood the need to stand firm, this is the fourth time that He's used this, this word. We begin with the belt of truth. All right, I'm going to explain what, what the, what the uh, Roman soldier's uniform was, and then I'm going to, to explain what it, what it means, what it means to us. Well, the belt consisted of two long strips of leather that were tightened. It wasn't something that we would use today to hold our pants up. I don't mean to be crass. They didn't wear pants. All right? They, they used two long strips of leather where they would wrap it up, and it was held, and it was, as it was tightened, it would tighten up what was called the, the tunic and also everything that hooked around it. We also know this in the Scriptures when we're called to gird up our loins. That's the old King James Version. That's what he's talking about here. You gird it up so you can freely move where nothing else is hanging loose. And if they didn't have this, if they, were, they would trip, they would fall, they would be toast, my words. Well, it was large enough to protect the midsection and the kidneys. And what Paul is saying is this. God's truth is what holds everything together. It's God's truth that we have to have around us to even begin this fight. And Christian, understand in this day of relativism, I can say that maybe not three times fast, but once. Church, it, it, truth isn't relative. It's not all oh, it's good for you it might be good for good for you but it's not good for me it wasn't it's oh i wish this were true it's what oh, or even what society believes is true it's objective it means it has a firm foundation it's biblical truth that comes from god what does truth do What does it accomplish? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Well, it sets us free. Truth will also sanctify us. Sanctify them by by your truth. Your word is true. Truth brings confidence. It brings comfort. It brings assurance. It makes you able to stand. You can fight. As a Roman governor asked Jesus, What is truth? Not knowing that the truth stood right in front of him. Well, what is the truth? We need to go back to what theologians call the first principles. Well, I found this this week, and they're these. What are are the first principles? God is holy. God is righteous, God is perfect, all His ways are right, His mercy endures forever. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're kept forever by His love. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Lord Jesus died and rose again. He now intercedes for us in heaven and all things are working together for our good. Now, those are some truths. Now, when I said that we need to go back, that was, that was literal. When temptation comes, when trials rise against us, when we need to remember and speak, we need to remember and speak out loud is generally good. When we remember, speak it. I'm not talking word of faith here. Please do not. We're not speaking things into existence. But we're speaking truth so we can hear it. And yes, those who are against us can hear it as well. Well, how do we do this? Practically speaking, songs of faith. What did we sing this morning? All songs that spoke of truth. All songs that place God as number one. All things that say He's done everything. How would I do it? Probably my favorite hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. How about in Christ alone? How about singing a mighty fortress is our God? Or something as simple as Jesus loves me. The theology in that song depth depth all these truths about god wrapping you up so tight that you can face whatever comes against you god's truth has been provided god's truth has been provided do you need to tighten your belt do you need to tighten your belt The next piece of armor provided by the Lord is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate would be today what we would call body armor. You place it on so nothing can get through it. It was a metal piece that covered the chest and the back. It was used so the heart wouldn't be damaged, the heart and the lungs. It protects the heart. And that's what righteousness does. Well, what is it? What is, what are we, what's Paul talking about here? He he talks about two types. God's own righteousness freely given to those who truly believe in Christ. God's righteousness given to you. Now, why is that important? Because if you try to generate righteousness yourself, No one is that good. The truth is plainly written from both the Old and the New Testaments. In Isaiah, he writes We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment in the New Testament, in Romans. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But by faith, those who believe, apart from any works of their own, have been given God's righteousness. Luther called this an alien righteousness. It comes from something that's not of this world. It comes from God Himself. An Old Testament example in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed that God would provide an heir for him when he was an old man. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and it it was counted to him as righteousness. Just belief. Believing what God's truth is. And in Romans... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet God gives his righteousness to those who believe. And because of belief, we've been declared righteous. We've been justified by God. This is important things. Paul writes this in Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. A man who had surpassed everybody in his day with man-made righteousness. But he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and to be found in Him not having a righteousness, righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because we're clothed in Christ, this affects our righteousness. This affects our behavior. This is the second type of righteousness, good deeds. We become more like our Savior every day. Our lifestyle is one that draws attention A half a century ago, I know I'm going back a ways and a lot of you weren't old enough to even know who some of these folks were, but I'll try to paint the picture for you. One of the leading golfers on the, the PGA Tour at the time was invited to play in a foursome which with Gerald Ford. All right, he, was the, he was the president after Nixon. And you're going, who's Nixon? I'm not going there. He was the president after Nixon. He played. He was an op. But Ford, then the, and then Jack Nicklaus. Jack Nicklaus is the best golfer that ever lived. I don't care. Tiger Woods, you have nothing on him. And Billy Graham. Okay, that's, that's, that's quite a duo. You have a president of the United States, you have the best golfer in the world, and you have Billy Graham, who was at that time known as the greatest evangelist. Well, the golfer was especially in awe of playing with Ford and Billy Graham. He'd played frequently with Nicholas and played against him and maybe even beat him a couple times. After the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to him and said, hey, how'd you like it? How'd you like playing with uh, Gerald Ford and Billy Graham? And the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner, and I say, I quote, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he turned off, walked off to the practice tee, got a bucket of balls, and just started smacking them around. Total anger. All right, so his neck, veins sticking out of it. Notice how I'm trying to paint the picture in 4K. And just steam coming out of his ears. And his friend said nothing. He was, just, he was just sitting on the bench watching. And after a few minutes, the anger subsided and, and the pro had settled down and his friend quietly said, he said, well, was, was B- Billy a little rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassing sigh and said, no. He didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. And astonishingly, the, Billy Graham had not said one word about God, about Jesus, or religion, yet the pro stormed away in, from the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. Now, why was this the case? Because... His reputation preceded him. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother a wicked man who flees when no man pursues. Luther was right that the pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hounds of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it's only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. The truth of the scriptures are written and said this way, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death To death means it smells like rotten. But to to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Living righteously matters. It gives you boldness. It gives you assurance. The next piece of armor is shoes, ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. A Roman soldier's shoes, even though it was from the Nike time, they weren't meant to run in. They were a half boot, and underneath it, from a half inch to a quarter inch of leather, nails were nailed into these shoes. What they were meant for is to stand firm is to stand their ground so they wouldn't lose their footing. To us, it would be, maybe it would be, in today's day, it would be soccer cleats or baseball cleats, something in that matter. But what Paul is saying here is it's the peace of God that comes to us in and through the gospel that makes us immovable in battle. You're not going to be pushed. When things come against you, you can stand firm. And that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, his life, his death for sinners and resurrection from the grave. And belief in this provides us peace with God. Hear me. That provides peace with God. You do not have to fear In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to sleep at night. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. God is your friend. Where We were once enemies. And I would say, and I think that you would agree, apart from God, There is no peace. People try to find peace wherever they possibly can, through anything they possibly can do, but yet they may achieve everything the world has to offer them, but yet when they close their eyes at night, they have no peace because they have no peace with God. But Christ, through Christ, He provides that. In the Scriptures, peace, also known as, you probably heard it, shalom. means completeness. Soundness and welfare. Boiled down and distilled, peace means well being. Peace to you, well being to you, well being. I want you to have, I want you to live well. And hear me, Jesus promises and delivers peace. Remember that storm that I talked about from John that Jesus, when he calmed it, That's literal storm. He provides peace in that. He himself is peace and unnerves those who are without God. The bottom line is this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I believe I mentioned this earlier in this series that on March 13th, when I was, my wife took me to the hospital and I was lying numb from here up to here, and you're wondering, man, what is going on? Colette and I were at perfect peace. I can't explain it, it's the peace of God. I know that whatever happened, God has it under his control. And because of the good news of the gospel, if you're in Christ, not only the here and now is secure church, not only the here and now, when you're facing a big decision about what you're doing, when you're going to school, what you're having to face. That here, it's, you have peace. He provides peace now, not you don't have to wait. but we have peace in our eternity, too, and that emboldens confidence. Next, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The Roman soldier often used two types of shields. One which we see all the Roman, when we watch movies, we see these guys carrying these shields these little handheld shields, you know they 're like this, and they fight and they ward off the ward off the spears and, and the and the swords it's not that type of shield. They used a different type, type of shield. it was one that would be the size of a small door. It would be four feet high and about two and a half feet wide, and with that, they could get it, and they could get underneath this, and they could they could hold it and as th- whether they were fighting by themselves or fighting with their other with the other group of soldiers, it's the way they protected themselves. Well, they were made of two layers of laminated wood, and then they were covered with linen, and then with animal hide, and then bound together from top to bottom with iron. And then, of course, they had to have the iron insignia, insignia on the front of it. You know, you had to have to know what team you're playing for. Things had to be heavy, right? An historian writes, a man could put his entire body behind it as it absorbed the javelins and the arrows of the enemy. In the case of flaming arrows, very often the arrow would snuff itself out as it buried itself in the thickness of the shield. During battles, these great shields would often bristle with smoking arrows like roasted porcupines. Think of that. What a scary look. And the truth being conveyed is that without faith, we can be just overwhelmed with strong emotions that can quickly destroy us. What begins is a small spark. I'm thinking doubt now. I'm thinking temptation. A small spark. It can quickly burst into dry tinder. Giant flames, uncontrolled fire, but with faith, which means trusting in God's power and his assurance about our, our assurance and our identity in Christ, the arrows that Satan hurls at us simply fall, snuffed out harmlessly to the ground. Dink, dink. The shield represents God's power and protection for his people. What's a flaming dart? Ray Pritchard paints a picture for us. He says, and I quote, We all have experienced this sort of thing many times, speaking of the flaming dart. When the day begins, we feel strong and confident that we're just sailing along, checking things off our list, doing the need what needs to be done, handling the problems as they arise, and then BAM! Out of nowhere, something happens, and suddenly your mind begins to slide in the wrong direction. The temptation may be to anger, lust, bitterness, greed, doubt, despair, or any of the hundred negative emotions. We may be sailing along, then something happens, an unkind word, an unplanned interruption, a difficult person intrudes, a a subtle seduction, a careless comment, a crass invitation. Ever been there? The devil's inventions come in a thousand varieties and we're all caught off guard, hit unawares and thrown off balance. One writer called it a violent temptation in which the soul is set on fire of hell. So husbands and wives may fight about the tiniest troubles Parents may blow up at their children for the slightest provocation. There may be a strong desire toward immorality or an appeal to festering anger or a reminder of a hidden unforgiveness. It could be envy that eats away like a canker or fear that snaps your strength. And how do you fight? It comes back to who you're depending on. Who are you depending on, yourself or the Lord? Do you have faith in the Lord? You don't have faith in faith. It's faith in the one who provides everything that we need. Is it God or is it your own strength? Like David when he fought Goliath, he didn't trust man's armor, he went out with slings and a stone. It's living a life of dependence, and that takes faith. Next, the helmet of salvation. The helmet provides and pro- protects the soldiers, and this is from me, it protects their noggin. You know, things are now as they were then, the head needs to be protected. No soldier's uniform was complete without a helmet. What's being said is the helmet is the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. It's understanding the position that we fight from. Where do we fight from? Victory! Christ is won. He wins. He defeated Satan at the cross. And He's given you the power To do the same, it brings confidence to the warrior, and that's invaluable. The bottom line is that whatever takes place, whatever the outcome, whether it be victory, a seen victory, or whether it be physical death, it's victory. Hear me. Christian, God loves you. He has promised. Jesus has promised he will never leave you or forsake you. Because he has paid the ultimate price for you, he will not allow anything to ultimately defeat you. And I do mean ultimately. Some of us in this room may die from disease some of us in this room may die from accidents some of us in this room may have things that happen to us that seem totally god why do you why don't you care yes he cares but the whole goal is to be made more like Christ to be sanctified to live for him Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That truth, my brothers and sisters, gives spiritual confidence Finally, the Scripture commands us to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The weapon is meant to be used on offense. Now, there are two types of sword that a, that a soldier used. One is a big old giant broadsword. We've all seen it. They're, this, they're from about here to that music stand. And it takes a big old swing to, swing to be able to use it. It takes a lot of strength. In close quarter action, it's useless. But what Paul was talking about and what he said, it was, what he had in mind was a Markarian, which is relatively short. It's about this long. Razor sharp. We might even call it a dagger. They were used to At close range. And they would strike lethal blows. They would go far enough to hit the organs and come out. And what is this Christian sword? So I see the Roman soldier's sword, but what is the Christian sword? The spirit-breathed, spirit-controlled use of the word Of God. The Word of God. The Bible uses two words when it describes the Word of God. One is logos, which means the entirety or a big, huge written passage of Scripture. But what Paul uses here, he uses the Greek word rhema, which is a small, small word, a small sentence, even something, even a small word. Phrases. And most of the time, spoken out loud. Well, what's meant by this? Case in point, let's use the master swordsman as an example. Jesus, when he fought Satan, when when he was taken into the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan came to him, tempting him, Did Jesus say, Leave me alone? Did he say, Oh, that's not nice? Did he say, You know what? Come back again when I feel like talking to you. No, no, no. He said every single time, It is written. And then he said the verse that basically spoke to the temptation It is written. Satan, not, all, oh, I kind of think this. No, it is written in the Scriptures. And nothing defeats the devil like the Word of God. I've heard it said that our clever arguments mean nothing to him, meaning Satan. They don't mean a thing. He brushes aside our self-confidence because our reputation means nothing to him. But when we stand on the Word, we strike a decisive blow that He can't answer. He will flee. That's from the Word. I began this morning by mentioning the 17th century writer John Bunyan. In his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, he writes about a battle being waged. I'm going to read from... Pilgrim's Progress. Then Apollyon, a spying, that means viewing, spying, his opportunity began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now, And with that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, "'Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. "'When I fall, I shall arise.'" Notice that double entendre. And with that, gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread his forth his dragon's wings and sped away that Christian saw him no more. The aged apostle John wrote this in his first epistle. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In Hebrews, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, the battle's raging. How can you continue or begin to use God's armor? By living it. Simply by living it. By living truthfully, rightfully, righteously, peaceably, dependently, confidently, and biblically. Our greatest enemies are not physical. They aren't financial. They aren't personal. They aren't intellectual. They aren't emotional. Our real enemies are unseen, and they're always ready to attack the human heart. One man has said, that's why a change of scenery, a change of job, a change of circumstances, a change of a lifestyle, a change of appearance, or a change of relationship so often accomplishes nothing. Oh, I wish I had a better job. Oh, I wish I had a better partner. Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. We're the same people because we face the same enemies and fight the same battles, even if things on the outside change. You can move from Miami to Beijing to Wichita to Lisbon and nothing will change unless you change on the inside. Our one hope, our only hope, is to put on the armor, the whole armor of God, and so prove that what the Bible says is really true. Verse 13 of Ephesians from the NLT says this. Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. You know what? I really like that last phrase, the way it's written you will still be standing firm and that's God's intention for every believer. I finish here. No believer is safe who faces Satan in his own strength. Hear that again. No believer is safe who faces Satan in his own strength. No believer is more secure And he who goes into battle wearing the whole armor of God. Martin Luther, in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, penned these words. Meditate on them in light of what we've learned today. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. Dusk, ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Church, stand and fight because Jesus is on your side.